Hello everybody, welcome to the Bumper End of Year podcast. Massive thanks to everyone who submitted questions. I've included as many of them as, as I can. Uh, I'm busy editing it together now and we're looking at around about three hours. <laughs> Possibly more, so you've got uh, plenty to listen to over the festive season. I know some of you like to listen to them as you're doing your, your, your pre-Christmas chores, uh, so I'm going to get this first part out here straight away, and the second and third part we'll probably look at will follow. Uh, as usual, they are the spoof adverts in there, you know, all in good fun. Please don't anyone take uh, any offence, but, you know, uh, I hope you enjoy them. I certainly enjoy recording them. Uh, <laughs> So they amuse me if they amuse no one else. So uh, in this part, in this first part, we talk about uh, the self-defense uh, side of things, uh, cut the history, and we have some training questions as well. So yeah, let's let's crack on and let's get into the first part of the Bumper End of Year podcast. Are you a new black belt who wants to fake experience? Then you need our customized belt wrecking service. Why wait for your belt to fray naturally? No need to carefully unpick the threads, let us take care of everything for you. We take the cheapest quality belts we can find, rub them with sandpaper and then lovingly tie it to the collar of a hobo's dog before releasing it into the impoverished inner city area of your choice. One month later, we use state-of-the-art GPS technology to reclaim your belt. We then drag it behind the back of a car, the belt, not the dog, on the way back to our boutique. The belt, or what's left of it, is then disinfected, placed in a beautiful presentation case, and then shipped to you so you can wear it with pride and absolutely no shame at all. Okay, so let's look at these self-defense questions. So the first one's from uh, Matthew in New Zealand. He said, do you have any advice on learning about self-defense law in our country? Uh, what kind of approach did you take? So the first thing is, uh, if you're claiming to teach self-defense, you need a good understanding of what the law is relating to self-defense, uh, which obviously Matthew gets, so I'm making that point for the, you know, the, the general audience. It, it's a must. Now, martial artists have a really bad habit of trying to negotiate themselves out of that. Uh, so they're not doing the due diligence, and they'll use uh, things like, oh, well, you know, better to be judged by 12 than carried by 6, or in a real fight, you haven't got time to think about the law, uh, which are all nonsense arguments, right? So better to be judged by 12 than carried by 6, as has been pointed out innumerable times, is a false choice. Uh, it is possible to legally defend yourself and not go to jail. You know, it's not that you have to choose between prison or death. Uh, in terms of, you know, you can't think about these things in the middle of a real fight, of course you can't, which is why it's important to think about it in training, so the habits that you engender in yourself will see you defend yourself effectively and legally. So those who've been to the seminars and trained with me in person will know we put a big emphasis on this. You know, there's, there's always, you know, how will these actions be perceived by third parties? How will this be judged? What mistakes you can make uh, in order to uh, mislead people to make it seem that you've been more violent than you have? Uh, it, it's vital that self-defense law is, is considered. Uh, for my own students, again, you know, in terms of the drills we do, that's in accord with the law of the land. Uh, it's also something we talk about a lot. We have a handout. That, that I do and, and I point them um, in the way of uh, resources when pre preparing that uh, handout I talk to a, a police officer a police trainer, a judge a magistrate 
uh, and you know, and asked them, you know, is, does this read okay and, and things. So um, obviously, it's not legal advice; it's just expressing the position. Uh, in the UK, one of the great resources is the Crown Prosecution Service, um, because obviously they're the ones who will determine whether um, your action uh, is going to go to court or not. And uh, they have uh, a great deal of uh, advice on the law generally on their website. If you, for those in the UK, just Google Crown Prosecution Service Self-Defence. You read that, that's a pretty good summation of the law in the land here. Now, of course, Matthew's asking about New Zealand, um, and obviously I don't new, uh, live in New Zealand, you know, students don't either. So my, my first thing I would do is I would start with the, the law itself. Uh, so uh, I don't know over there if the government has it widely available. In, in England, we can see all of that. It, it's, it's all online, all the, the laws. You can just simply Google it and up it pops. Um, but, but it may be that uh, if the New Zealand government have put it online, if not, you may have to dig a little bit deeper to get it, but read the law itself. Again, sometimes the UK law is fairly easy to follow, uh, if I'm honest. You know, it, it's quite well written but obviously there's always that thing of legalese where it's not clear uh, also uh, have the government or the police or anyone else like that put out any kind of uh, advice or any guidance if they have again uh, that can be useful uh, um, above all else though um, and this is another thing i think martial artists have a bad habit of doing is don't fill the gaps so i'll often hear uh, here in the uk self-defense instructors uh, martial arts instructors um, say things you know that are just wrong flat out wrong and and, then, and because the student then has a fear of the law or a misunderstanding of the law they may either not act when they should have because they fear what the legal repercussions could be Whereas in truth, you know, the, the, well within the rights act given within a certain set of parameters. Uh, or the other one is that they act in a way that's inappropriate and then find they have legal problems. You know? So this is why um, I, I use the, the goal for self-defense is some people say things like survive. Well, well I always think that, that's, that's a bad goal because, I mean, one is you could end up on a life support machine being fed through tubes. You survived. Is that a good outcome? You know, I would argue it not. Another, another one relevant to what we're talking about now is you end up in jail. So, so you, you do something that's entirely inappropriate, uh, you end up in jail. So you survived, but is that a good outcome? I would say not. So the, the phrase I use is, our self-defense training is there to avoid harm. And that should not only include physical harm, it should also include legal harm as well. Uh, so back to Matthew's point, I, I would start, I would, I would look it up. What does the law of the land say sp directly? What does it say? Where's your self-defense law find that? And there's the government. Uh, your government itself put out any guidance on that or any clarification notes that may not be for for civilians it could be for police officers or um, uh, lawyers or whatever it happens to be but try and find that guidance and, and get it from official sources as well um, uh, second-hand interpretation can help but i think sometimes the further you get away from the source the, the more chance of confusion there can be We interrupt this podcast for an important public announcement. Tangsudo people, know that Midnight Blue is definitely not the new black. So next question is from uh, Patrick McDonald. And he said, uh, Rory Miller focuses on a very small number of proven physical techniques whereas you seem to broaden uh, your repertoire out. What do you see as the benefit in doing so over keeping it simple? So th th there's a nuance to this, because I don't actually disagree with Rory at all when it comes to the 
sharp edge self-protection element of it i would do the same thing i would say you stick to a very small number of techniques uh, that you have proven can work for you. Uh, for me, of course, as well as being interested in the self-defense elements, I'm also a martial artist, and I'm also interested in the fighting elements. So that I will learn a wide range of techniques as part of my martial arts education. I will learn techniques that, that are maybe not well-suited to physical self-protection, but maybe are well-suited to out-fighting a fellow martial artist within various confines, you know, so judo techniques for judica and you know boxing techniques for boxers and things like this you know which which when you're fighting one of your own kind it rewards complexity because um the martial artist of the, your own stripe is not going to get caught by the simple stuff because they've seen it a billion times so within that framework sometimes there can be advantages to doing something unexpected self-defense wise you want to keep it as simple and basic as possible so to maybe help clarify this, and again, those who've been the seminars will know that I talk about what I call your theoretical knowledge versus your practical knowledge. So your theoretical knowledge is everything you know how to do in theory across all of those contexts, to which, in my case, there is a wide variety of techniques, hundreds, thousands, probably. In terms of my practical knowledge, which is these are the techniques I'm going to use if, if, if you know, for self-defense, if, if it all kicks off. Beyond preemption, you've got... I'd be surprised if I'm in double figures. You know, a very small number of, you know, palm heels, elbows, knees, simple sweeps, you know, nothing more complicated than that, right? Basic gripping skills, super, super simple stuff is what you need for self-defense. So in terms of the, the benefit of doing so, well, um, are you training solely for self-defense? Um, cause if you are, if you are, um, which, which again, I liken learning self-defense at like first aid. It's a basic set of skills. If that's all you're doing, don't broaden it out. Learn that simple set of techniques and stick to that. If you're learning to be a martial artist too, there's a sheer enjoyment in learning a wide range of techniques. Um, I, I, and I think, you know, it, it can help you understand the alternate ways of expressing uh, combative principles and ideas. If you're also interested in out fighting another martial artist within a, a, a consensual exchange, uh, the simple techniques you use for self-defense uh, aren't going to be sufficient. So there's benefit to there in, in broadening it out. But again, it's all context dependent. Um, so uh, for self-defense, I'm fully on board with Rory. What you need is a very small number of techniques that, that, that you keep as simple and basic as possible. For your wider martial arts or fighting skills, then there is benefit to widening that out, of course. And one thing, of course, you know, just a, a little aside, is we, we are all different. So there's certain techniques that I would use for self-defense that I find super simple and easy for me that someone with different abilities or different stature, uh, different psychological makeup may, may not like to the same degree. So by broadening it out a little... You can get people who go, yeah, you know, you like to punch there, but I like to palm heel. Uh, you like to elbow with your hand in this formation. I like to elbow with my hand in that formation. So broadening it out to give people alternative ways of doing things, rather than doing the cookie cutter thing of this works for me, it's going to work for you. Uh, but even within that, for self-protection, you're still talking about a very small narrow band of techniques, you know, so that, that, that people can, can choose from for the, the ones that, 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 that fit for them.
So another really good question from uh, Patrick McDonald. He said, can you speak of the uh, um, degradation, he said, for lack of a better word, uh, of skill during an actual physical confrontation and the importance of training at high levels so that degradation of skill leaves us uh, able to deal with the situation uh, effectively? Yeah, it's a really good point. That's so the first thing is you choose techniques that don't degrade. Um, so this goes back to what we've been talking about. So... Uh, you know, you show me a wrist lock I've never seen before. As a martial artist, I want to learn it. I'm totally okay learning complicated, clever things for the joy of learning those things. But I would never dream of applying them. So uh, when it comes to self-defense element, you choose techniques that rely on gross motor movement that are simple, that are basic. Um, because uh, otherwise, you know, if anything that's complicated or requires finite motor skills, it's going to disappear to the point where it's, it's not workable. So that's the first thing. Choose the right technique. And, and the other thing is, uh, you need to drill it uh, in a way, if we're talking about, you know, um, martial artists developing really functional self-defense skills. I wouldn't do this doing a self-defense course for general members of the public. I would just go, here's some one or two super basic techniques, that's it. Uh, but for the martial artists who's, you know, still choosing a very small number of basic techniques, but wants them, you know, as bulletproof as possible, and who's prepared to put in the time and effort to get them as bulletproof as possible, then you need to be training with stress. Uh, physical fatigue is, is a great one. Because when you are absolutely physically exhausted, it mimics, uh, not perfectly, but sufficiently, uh, some of the effects of adrenaline. So, you know, you, you, you feel you don't want to be there, your muscles aren't quite under your same control you know it's um, it, that can work so training while stressed and fatigued is important now and again think about the training with peter constein this is more than martial arts level training but we do that uh, when we train with peter and people who've, who've done that we, we'll do these high level advanced martial arts drills but we do them in a way that's absolutely physically demanding as well so you're trying to achieve that high level of explosiveness technique and even aesthetic you know of the technique within a very stressful environment and, and that helps make the techniques more robust uh, and then also you know working to have a high level te technique one of my instructors always used to say in training always strive for that 10 out of 10 uh, this is because in reality it's going to drop to a six if the technique's already a six then it's going to drop to a one or two which is the, in the realms of unworkable so so yeah you've got to practice it in stressful environments uh, so that you can deliver those techniques in stressful environments and again you know choose techniques that don't degrade that much so real it's unreal are you unfit Unable to fight sleep? Paper bags too tough to punch your way out of? Sick of inconvenient pressure testing getting in the way of your ultraviolent vigilante fantasies? Then delusional self-defense is for you. Decry all forms of martial athleticism with verbal dismission skills such as That wouldn't work in the street. That's nothing but sport. I'd just punch him in the throat. When you've had as many fights as I have, well we all know it's none, but don't let that stop you. And more! Sign up now for your free anonymous social media accounts. Reality-based self-defense takes study and effort. Delusional self-defense needs nothing but a vivid imagination and a keyboard. Remember, delusional self-defense, it's unreal. So the next question is from Adam Mills. He says, I understand you recently started teaching children in the dojo again. Uh, do you include a self-protection component in their training? If so, what exercises skills do you find useful? Do you include things like Cooper's Colors Code, verbal de-escalation, etc.? Uh, no we don't uh, the, the, the kids 
I mean, you mentioned we're in the dojo again. They're not really in the dojo because we have a, a the kids are entirely separate. It's a different night to a different. It's even a different location, and it's a different syllabus. So my aim with the kids is I want them to have fun. I want them to develop a, a good degree of fitness and health. Uh, you know, I want them to enjoy it, and I want them to develop the fundamentals that if they stay around long enough. Uh, they've then got a running start at the more functional stuff we'd teach to the uh, the adults. Um, so, you know, we're still trying to teach some workable skills, but in terms of self-protection training, uh, I don't sit down and talk to the kids about verbal de-escalation and all that kind of stuff. It, it, it's, it's not what we do with them. Uh, but the, the kids are learning the kata. They learn a little bit of basic bunkai, so they get the ideas. We have them learning basic pad drills, so they know how to hold and they know how to move. Uh, but the ultimate aim is to get them ready to the point where uh, they're ready to move want the adult syllabus that they have some existing skills uh, skills in place now in terms of you know the children and the self-defense side of things uh, I'll just recommend Jamie club stuff you know it, it, everything that Jamie's done on that front I believe Jamie to be the world's leading expert on that um, so when parents aren't around is Jamie's book you know ch check that out you, you, there's no better resource for that but but in terms of what what I'm doing with with, with the kids um, I, I'm aiming to get them ready so that when they turn like 14, 15, they can join the adult class and they've got certain movement skills and everything else uh, in place. But for the kids, yeah, it's, it's very different. I'm, I'm teaching the kids martial arts. Yeah, I'm not teaching them the self-defense stuff. Next question is uh, from John Rister. He says, do you think karateka who practice for self-defense need to spend time on the verbal assault and how to deal with it uh, because it's often a precursor to physical violence? 100%. Uh, absolutely, uh, they, they need to spend time on those verbal skills. This is another element where martial artists are, are really bad for giving it lip service. So you'll often hear things like, they'll go, "Oh, talk your way out if you can." Right? Great. How? You know, tell me what I need to do to talk myself, uh, talk myself out of situations. How do I de-escalate? How do I recognise if it's no longer appropriate to de-escalate? How are we going to drill that and practice it so I have those skills honed and refined? It's not enough just to go do it. The equivalent is saying uh, to a student, "Yeah, uh, I've entered you for a kickboxing bout next week. Uh, kick and punch them, and don't get kicked and punched." And they go, "Okay, that's sound advice. Should we practice this?" No. Just kick and punch them, but don't get kicked and punched. So when people go, talk your way out if you can, it's the equivalent of that. You need to, to actually practice it. Now, there's a samurai saying as well, where they said three reasons why you lose a fight. And there's uh, a fear of, of reputation, cowering on sight, or inadequacy in training. So the cowering on sight one, uh, you may be the most skilled physically. But if a criminal is able to intimidate to the point where you're, you know, you've you've lost control of the nerves and you're a blubbering mess. Um, that's a problem. So you need to be able to get used to that 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 ag aggression and deception. You know, sometimes people can be charming and that can be just as uh, um, threatening or dangerous if they're doing it for nefarious ends. But that that. Uh, that verbal assault it's something you definitely need to practice and I'm lucky there that was always you know quite a few of my teachers have always insisted that was part of, of, of practice and training it's something that we drill uh, throughout the grades from the from uh, low uh, ninth cues you know that uh, that's the first grade we do. So beginners onwards, uh, they they learn. Uh, um, they include verbal elements in the in the training because it's it's an absolute must. You know, it, 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 um, without it, you're not accurately recreating real world self defence, and that's obviously a problem. 
Have you been injured by a fellow martial artist voicing a slightly differing opinion to your own on the internet? We can help. Here at Paper Tiger Legal Services, we know it's the minor blows to the ego that really hurt. As a martial artist, you can kick, punch, throw and lock with the best of them, but no one should have to endure someone having a subtly different view to you. That's just too barbaric for anyone. If you've had to endure the unendurable, please contact us and we will take legal action on your behalf. Just listen to what some of our satisfied customers have said. I was horrified to learn that a fellow martial artist performed their cat stands with their lead heels slightly higher off the ground than me. I sued for emotional damages and I now own his house, and ironically his cat. I was left a shadow of my former self when I was told I wasn't pronouncing karate correctly. Paper Tiger Legal Services took action and now he's legally prohibited from speaking Japanese between the hours of 7am at midnight or at all at weekends. This bald Cumbrian chap suggested that Hikate was not for power generation and we'll stop there. So the next question is from David Burns. He said, given that the habitual acts of physical violence are different from males and females, do cutters deal with both equally or sway towards male-related uh, defense techniques? Are there cutters for boys and cutters for girls? Uh, you sometimes hear chinte is a women's, uh, women's self-defense. Does that seem to be the case in reality? There is one. The name's escaping me at the moment. There is a, um, a Shitoru cutter that the women perform differently to the men. Uh, I can't remember uh, the name of the cutter now. So, so that, that definitely does exist in there. But, but there's a couple of things I want to unpack on this. So the first thing is you're definitely, when you look at crime stats, there's a difference in the percentages when it comes to crime uh, that men are more likely to get than, than women. So the you know, classic examples uh, in the UK, the most likely way for a man and woman to be killed is being stabbed, so that, the, that in common. Uh, once you get beyond that, you know, for a woman it's more likely to, for her to be strangled in her own home by someone she knows, typically a partner. Uh, with uh, men, it's more likely they'll be kicked and punched to death by someone they don't know in or around somewhere that serves uh, alcohol. So that there are uh, are differences, but that doesn't mean that, that these things happen exclusively. There's not this binary thing that women are only strangled and men are only hit. So, so the the fact is, for uh, men and women, you need to make sure that uh, all of it's covered. You know, if we're talking about you know people studying uh, uh, the self-defense component of a wider martial arts program, you need to consider all of it's covered, because all of it can happen to all of us. Now, now, statistically, it is useful to know that learning defenses against strangles, and we're not talking about, you know, Sangakajimis here, you know what I mean? Not that kind of strangle. We're talking about pressure on a throat. You know, we're not talking about uh, advanced ground fighting BJJ judo style strangles, um, but 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 it, the, knowing that there is a, a, it's more likely to happen for women is important because you can explain that and you can emphasise that in the instruction. But that doesn't mean that men never get strangled. So 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 everybody needs to study all of it. You're you're aware that there are differences. Uh, in the way that it works and different emphases and different levels of importance maybe. So when it comes to the, uh, the, the kata, it, it's, there's, there's strangle defenses in there, like the start of Seipai jumps to mind. There's, there's covers for strikes in pretty much all of the katas you can think of. You know, so, so the, the, those methods are in there. Right, so so it, it mainly comes down to yes, we'll practice all of it, uh, uh, but maybe when we're recreating scenarios, we'll, we'll okay. This is a scenario that is more suitable towards, uh, or more likely, for, you know, for, for females. This is a scenario more likely for males, but you should include both. You know, you should include both. Uh, I, I also, you know, I have a little bit of um, a problem when people do this when they create lists of 
these are the techniques you're likely to face because what invariably follows from that or normally follows from that is oh, so technique one is a hook punch to the head here's a defense for it technique two is a headlock here's a defense for it technique three is your throat being grabbed here's a defense for it the, the trouble with that way of thinking is it's, it, it encourages a reactivity the enemy does A and you respond with the counter to A whereas self-defense wise you are far better ensuring that you're on the front foot so when it can't be avoided you need to be preemptive and failing that you certainly need to be proactive uh, so I think self-defense wise we're better encouraging that in, in, in our drills so you know this uh, I have a little bit of a problem when people do that because of not necessarily you know studying the nature of violent crime is important we need to understand the problem so we can understand the solution. But then making lists and then trying to count the list is problematic because you're producing counters and action is always going to be faster than reaction. The criminal expects to dominate. And if you're looking at uh, responses to their action, you're basically saying, yeah, I, I, we're on for that. We'll, we'll go along with you dominating. That's not the way it should be. We should, uh, we should dominate. And then, of course, when you get these lists, people go, oh, that's the male list, that's the female list, and they get a very strong demarcation. Well, of course, you know, we're all human beings, right? So men can be strangled and women can be kicked and punched. So we need to include, uh, include all of it. So in this section, we've got a series of questions about Kata history, Kata development. Uh, so the first one is from James Sizemore. He said, uh, is techie related to Tai Chi? Also, what is the long version of uh, techie? Uh, so, in, in, see, I like this question because it just enables me to talk about some things that uh, I find quite interesting. So one of the things that's quite common uh, in uh, not real martial arts history, but mythical martial arts history, uh, almost like martial propaganda, if you like, um, is that systems will claim to be the original, uh, which everything else uh, flowed from. So, for example, you know, uh, all of Kung Fu and Karate 2 uh, originated in the Shaolin Temple, you know, which utter nonsense. It's completely debunked. So, uh, Tai Chi sometimes does this too, you know, that it was the original ultimate martial art, uh, that then other versions are expressions of it. So in terms of is techie related to Tai Chi, no, you know, there's no evidence for that at all. I mean, there's obviously commonality in movement because human bodies can only move so many ways. Uh, in terms of the, uh, are they connected with a nice neat lineage from one to the other? Most definitely not. Uh, but that, again, that doesn't mean these stories are not interesting in and of themselves, because you know, why are they telling you that story? Uh, why do they want you to think that uh, um, all forms of Kung Fu come from the Shaolin Temple? Why do they want you to think that uh, Tai Chi is the ultimate martial art? You know that all of the ones flow from. That's interesting. You know, the, 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 in, in and of itself, the stories can be interesting in and of themselves, but but they're not literally true. So, in in terms of does Tai come from Tai Chi? No. Uh, and what does the long version of Tai look like? See, that's another more modern myth. So what's happened is, uh, maybe within the last decade or so, there's been an idea that the three Naihanchis, or the three techies, were originally one form that's been split into three. And the evidence presented for that is 
is non-existent. It's just really tenuous stuff about like, well, this version of the kata starts with a standard yoi position, whereas this one starts with this formal position. And it, it, a couple of authors have suggested it in books, um, and then through the power of the internet, people have run with it like it's the truth. But but if you look at the actual history, is is far clearer, right? So there's uh, one original naihanchi which we would now call Nahanshi Shodan, and the Nidan and Sandan versions are largely credited with uh, being Itosu's creations. So Itosu learns the first one and then creates the second two, in my view, to be alternate expressions of concepts introduced by the first one. So I joke and say it's like the Matrix movies, right? You know, you only really need to see the first one, but if you want a little bit of background information or dig a bit deeper then you can watch the other ones right so in terms of a long version of techie there, there isn't one but i think it's really interesting questions because th those those myths both modern and ancient come up uh, quite a bit but yeah we need to stay grounded in true history and uh and, and what we can prove rather than what we might like to be the case well it's now time for the quiz portion of the podcast it's your favorite play along game gojuru or death metal the rules are very simple. I say a word or a phrase, and all you have to do is say whether that's a translation of a Gojuru Kata or the name of a death metal band. It's always tricky, but here we go. Number one. Destroy, destroy, destroy. Number two. Attack and destroy. Number three. Deathlock. Number four. Smash and tear. Number five. Bloodbath. Number six. Battle law. Number seven. Three battles. Number eight. Dimak Number 9 Hold ground and destroy Number 10 Suffocation And number 11 Four directions of attack So how did you do? Number 2, 4, 7, 9 and 11 Are all Gudru Kata With the rest being death metal bands Apparently So in writing this it occurred that uh, Gudru could be the style of choice for goths <laughs> And then it also dawned on me how many Gudru folks I know in the UK that also wear black geese. Uh, you know who you are, you know, Doug Rowan, Christopher Lewis, Mark. Uh, give it a few years and black eyeliner could be a thing for third Dan and above. <laughs> Watch this space. Uh, so the next question is from Tommy K of Finland. So he wants to know about the uh, original Bunkai. Uh, why do we have so many interpretations of Katna today? In the past, um, you know, will they have had a, an original in mind? You know, a specific application for the Katna? And he also asks uh, how many of the Katna originally came for, from China and then were modified in, in Okinawa. So, yeah, I mean, undoubtedly, when the Katnas were created, those creating them had specific applications and drills in mind. It will not have been an open-ended uh, question where they go, okay, here's a movement, let's see how many ways we can apply it. Well, of course, what we're doing nowadays is we have the movement and then if we analyse it, then obviously we can come up to different interpretations of how that movement could be applied with each group settling on, on, on their own. But in terms of will there have been an original, yes, there will have been. I don't think it matters to today's practitioner whether they've hit that original or not. So long as what they're doing is functional and pragmatic, uh, that's good enough for me because we, we can know functionally whether something's valid or not historically it's a bit more difficult to prove whether it's valid or not so i, I think in terms of uh the data i always think practicality sh uh, should be valued over history in terms of how many cutter came from china well most of them claim some kind of Chinese connection. Now, in some cases, that's because the kata is said to have come from China. In other cases, it's the method 
or the martial artists that inspired it that came from China, but not the cutter itself. So if we go for Kanku Dai, Kasokan Dai, uh, Kishanku, it's all the same cutter, uh, that is said to have been created by Tode Sakagawa, who was an Okinawan. And Sakagawa uh, made this cutter, we're told, after studying under a Chinese gentleman called Kishanku. So the cutter was made on the island of Okinawa. It is named after a Chinese martial artist, and the cutter records the method of that Chinese martial artist. But the cutter itself did not come from China, although the methods that inspired it did. Uh, the other thing that you know we probably should keep in the back of our minds is that, to quote Funakoshi, uh, the Okinawans regarded all things Chinese to be excellent and fashionable. So there's a strong possibility, or at least a possibility that should be considered, that some of the kata we have that claim a deep Chinese connection or a deep Chinese history, it may not be that deep. It, it, I wouldn't put it beyond the realms of possibility that some of the kata that uh, it's claimed to have a strong historic connection to China may not have. It could be that the kata was created on Okinawa and then a Chinese history was invented for it to give it more legitimacy. Now, of course, we'll never know that fully, and if all the sources are saying this cutter traces back, then it's difficult to argue against it, right? But it, it's still something we sh should consider, that there was a, uh, anything that had a Chinese connection at this point, obviously it changed when karate reached Japan for various political and cultural reasons, uh, historical reasons, but 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 uh, but at that time in Okinawa, uh, anything Chinese was considered great. So we can't rule out the possibility that a Chinese connection was either invented or maybe exaggerated. So, uh, yeah, I hope that kind of answers your questions, Tommy. So the next question is from Thomas Carhill. He said, what do you consider to be the most notable difference between the Ryukyu Islands karate and the mainland uh, uh, karate of uh, Japan? Nowadays, not that much. You know, I, I think in, in terms of um, the karate that's been practiced across the piece, it seems to me to be largely similar uh, in terms of you've got, you know, functional karate and non-functional karate, 3K karate, sport karate. You've got that throughout, you know, the whole of Japan, the whole of the world, the whole of Okinawa, you know. So I don't think that the differences are now quite as stark. I think you find all kinds of karate everywhere. But in terms of historically what was the difference, then we can be clearer on that. So originally, of course, in Okinawa, it's practiced as a self-defense system. It's not that popular. You know, it, 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 its numbers are diminishing, so it realizes in order to thrive, what we need to do is copy what the popular martial arts on mainland Japan are doing, particularly judo and kendo. So things like, if you look at the differences, grading systems, uh, the do ethos, uh, even things like three-step and five-step sparring, you can see the strong kendo influence there, wearing of geese. You know, that obviously is influenced by judo. Um, uh, a lot of the uh, philosophical elements that we see in Japanese karate, a large the idea is borrowed from Kano, the founder of judo. So for those who want to understand the do concept, you, you'll see you know, various karate masters writing about it. But when I read their take on the philosophy 
of karate, if you like. It's never that convincing. You know, it's a bit incoherent and you can see gaps in it and it, it, it's almost a bit more aspirational. But, but but then you read Kano's understanding of what the Doe concept is and it's, oh, yeah, that's it. So if you to me, if you want to understand what the Doe of Karate Doe means, you're better off reading Kano, the founder of Judo stuff, because it was his idea, really. You know what I mean? that The, the, the karate uh, aped. You're realizing it could be popular. So in that way, you know, and then of course what happens is that back in Okinawa, and there's this famous document, the, the Meeting of the Masters, you can find that online, uh, where you know, Funakoshi's over in Japan pushing this dough idea. It's getting really popular. The, the Masters left in Okinawa have a meeting and then decide that, yes, the future of karate, we should copy some of these elements. Uh, we should start calling it karate dough, not just karate. And, you know, we should look to kind of have a standardized form of practice and, and, and so on and so on start calling empty hand or Chinese hand and things uh, because that was the form of karate that was going to be popular and it became popular the world over so so yeah definite difference between the older karate that we find on the Okinawans but nowadays is that difference as stark still I would say not so you, you can see 3k karate in Okinawa you can see sport karate in Okinawa you can find functional karate in Okinawa just as you can anywhere else in the world so the next question is from Joshua Hodges. He said, can you explain what is known, if anything, about the history of Jin, Jion, and Jite? He said, is it true that these katas uh, stem from a common origin? I've sometimes heard and read that these uh, are called the three temple kata, but I was concerned this might be pure speculation. Uh, I think you're right, Joshua. It is pure speculation. Uh, as I remember, the story is that there is a temple on mainland Japan called Jion, and therefore it was posited by some that that must have a connection to the kata. Again, I think this is wishful thinking where Karatika want to trace it back to a temple. It buys into the Shaolin temple myth a little bit. It would be weird if a, uh, a an art called Chinese Hand that allegedly draws heavily on Chinese influences uh, based in Okinawa uh, had methods that came from a, a Japanese temple uh, there's no history that i'm aware of that says that martial arts were practiced there in any meaningful degree there seems to be no historical connection other than the same name so i i, I think the idea that these are temple kata we can safely bin that it, pure speculation in terms of whether the three kata are uh, related again there's nothing historically to strongly tie them together they all start with a j sound that's tenuous right uh, but what's maybe slightly more convincing is the opening movement of all the forms is similar. Uh, you know, there's a general motion in, in, the, in the start, same way, you know, the stepping back and the rising of one arm and the dropping of another. But that's not enough for me to therefore uh, strongly uh, say that they are all connected. They could be, uh, they could be, but would I be confident uh, on that? No, I wouldn't. D just simply because they all have a, they all start with a J sound and they all have a similar opening movement. Lots of kata have similar opening movements. Uh, Kurumfa and Kashanku have similar opening movements. It doesn't mean that they're related and they both start with K. You know, so, so by, by same, same thing, yeah. Uh, and in terms of the temple kata thing, I think we can safely get rid of that. And one of the things as Karateka we do need to start accepting is there's a lot of the history we don't know and we'll never know. Uh, and it's problematic when we try and fill the gaps. You know, we feel, oh, well, no, we've got to have a strong, solid origin story here. Because what that does is it perpetuates myths and misunderstanding. And I think we're far better saying we don't know.
we interrupt this podcast for an important public announcement. Kyokushin people, please know that you're not fooling anybody by having your yellow belts halfway up your Q ranks. We all know what you've done, and we've long since stopped being impressed by how good your yellow belts are. So the next question is from Lucas Barboza, and he asked me, he goes, what do I think about the Sochin Kata controversy? Uh, on the one hand, it's claimed that Funakoshi's son was the only one who learned the true and correct form uh, by an old man, uh, suggested that it may be Aragaki. On the other hand, the Sochin Kata of Shitoryu uh, is, is quite different, you know, for, from that one. So it, it, here's the thing with this. This is another example, I think, of karateka uh, plugging historical gaps, right? Uh, and this is no more solid history than a Dan Brown novel is solid history. What we're doing is we're taking things we do know and then connecting them together in ways that have no basis in fact whatsoever. So there is a story that uh, that is told of Funakoshi being contacted by an unknown old man who wanted to pass on a kata before he died. Funakoshi was unable to go, so he sent his son. Uh, the son learnt the kata in a, uh, a a locked door with you know with the shutters down. Is the story, and and the old man confided in Funakoshi's son that look, I um, have only taught this kata to one other person, and when I did, I crucially altered it. Zero. To connect, say that that's Sochin. Nothing at all, right? It, 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 in fact, it would strike me as bizarre if it was Sochin. Um, it's far more likely that, because um, Funakoshi would tell us, you know, that this was the kata and this is where it came from, right? He doesn't. So I think it's far more likely that Funakoshi's son learnt the kata and then promptly forgot it. I, I don't believe that it was it was kind of passed on. You know what I mean? It, 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 there's, there's no evidence for that. The, the, uh, this mystery cutter, there's nothing to connect it to Sochin. That's people suggesting it may be. Now then, there is a marked difference, is in they are entirely different cutter between Shotokan Sochin and Shitoryu Sochin. So there's you know, various theories as to how they may connect. My guess would be they are entirely different kata with different uh, origins, different histories that both happen to go by the same name. I, I think looking at the kata, they have so little in common. I think that's more likely to be what's what's going uh, got going on there. And I mean, we see this as well. For example, if we're talking about Funakoshi's son, Funakoshi's son created a kata called uh, a bow kata called Matsukaze. Well, of course, there's a Shitoru kata which is not for a bow called Matsukaze. So, so we we know that uh, Funakoshi's son had no problem with giving names to things that were already taken by other kata. So it, it may be that he, you know he learned it from somewhere else. It could be his own creation. Um, its connection to Shitoru so. I think is unlikely, uh, but in terms of uh, is this uh, and, and again, you know, people say it was Aragaki, was this old man? Again, there's no evidence for that either. So I think it's it's taking the fact that the two cutters are different, um, theorizing that it may have been Sochin that he was taught with no evidence, and theorizing that the old man was Aragaki with no evidence. Right? Uh, again, if it was Sochin, I'm sure that would have been expressed as such. If it was Aragaki, I'm sure that would have been expressed as such. Far more likely that this is, we, we have the, the two different kata by the same name, uh, and then again, it's people trying to link things together that, that shouldn't be linked together. So, as to what that kata was, that lost mystery kata, again, I'd be prepared to bet large sums of money it was not Solchin. 
So the next question is from Marlon Wilson. He said, uh, have you or will you uh, go uh, on to look at the Chinese forms uh, that may be the roots of the Okinawan kata to help your understanding of the practical interpretation of the kata? Uh, no, because there's sometimes that, that idea that the Chinese forms are purer. Uh, and that if we go back to the Chinese forms that inspired the Okinawan kata, we'll have a better insight into them. Of course, that's based on the fundamental misunderstanding that the Chinese katas have been preserved in amber and have not changed. Uh, they have. We know they have. Those people who study the history of like Kung Fu, and uh, they, they had very similar pressures to what the Okinawans had. Uh, the Chinese systems also started evolving, also started being practiced for non-functional reasons, um, you know, for health and art and, and records of culture. They had all of those kinds of pressures. So if you could look at a Chinese version and an Okinawan version of the form, they've both been through the historical ringer. They've both evolved. So even if they had a common ancestor, they've both evolved separately. So looking at the modern Chinese form will give you no more insight into the old Chinese form than the modern Okinawan one will. You know, the, the, those two katas will be related um, to that older kata, but they've both evolved away from that older kata. And because we don't have... You know, they didn't have YouTube three or four hundred years ago and no one videoed these things we can never be certain what those older forms were so I, I think it's something of a fool's errand really to kind of go back and, and I think that comes from this notion that the older something is the purer it is the better it is um, it's one of those alternate measures to function really so no, yeah, I've, I've, I've looking at the Chinese developments culture uh, things that may have influenced our thought, that, that can be interesting. But specifically looking at a, uh, a Chinese version of an Okinawan form and, and looking for extra insights, you're not going to get that any more than you would looking at the differences between uh, the Shotokan and Shitoru versions of a kata or the, any other version of the same kata, okay? Because we, we don't know what they evolved from, so I'm not sure that that's that useful an approach. The next question is from Gary Strange, where he said, um, Ian, you often talk about what we can learn from the old masters, but is there anything in your opinion they got fundamentally wrong or that just doesn't translate or apply to modern society? As an aside, a couple of Anko Itosu's ten precepts talk about training karate for military purposes, whereas karate is normally referred to as a civilian form. So if we deal with that second one, or the second part of the question first, so uh, I don't think Itosu got anything wrong there, because he is very clear that karate is for use against villains and ruffians. It's for uh, non-consensual violence within a civilian context, not for military use. Now, now where some people think that Itosu thought that karate was for military uses within the 10 precepts so he's in the 10 precepts he said look this is a civilian form for dealing with villains and ruffians but he does go on to say if we introduce karate to the schools we will uh, it'll be a great service to our military okay uh, so the, the, but the bit that people misses is writing to the Okinawan schools at that time he's not writing to the military he's not saying to the Japanese military allow me to teach karate because it has direct military application what he's doing is he's writing to the schools to say I believe that if karate is introduced into the schools 
as a form of, 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 of exercise, we will produce people who have uh, fit minds, uh, fit bodies, and who will be disciplined. And those will be potential good recruits to the army that I know the Japanese authorities, in a wider sense, are wishing to grow. Right? So, so remember, he's trying to sell the art of karate, right? So he mentions it has self-defense applications, but then it doesn't say it has military applications. He said, if you let me teach this to the kids, this will produce better recruits for the military. Okay. Now, and historically, you need to understand that the Japanese authorities, had ex- they, they wanted a modern army, right? In the Western world, they're starting to use guns and explosives, and, and they have uh, like a, a modern army, right? Over in Japan, they don't have that yet. So they're desperate to get that. They realize they're falling behind on this. Now, if Otosu had wrote to the Japanese military and said, let me teach karate to the recruits, they'd go, what's the point? This is not what we're trying to achieve. You can't out-gaku an explosive device. You know what I mean? So, so, but what we do need is fit and healthy bodies. Okay, so he told us, as part of his sales pitch, if you like, he goes, right, you let me teach this to kids, I'll give you good, fit, healthy recruits. He's, he, ma- he does not make the case for the direct application of karate within a military context. Again, modern warfare is in place by this point, right? And even um, if you think of feudal warfare... Use your axe, use your sword, use your shield, use your uh, arrows and spears. You, you, you don't use your empty hands unless you've got absolutely no, no, no chance. So I don't think Itosu got that wrong because he, he doesn't say that karate is for military purposes. He, he says if karate is practiced in schools as a form of exercise, it will produce good recruits for the military. He does not say about direct military application of karate. In fact, it's quite clear it's for civilian application. So I'm, I'm glad you raised that, Gary, because it's an important point. And it's came up a few times over the last year or so where uh, people go, no, but it's also said it was for military use. Well, he actually doesn't, if you read what he says. He, he, he's not right to the military. He's right to the schools. But in terms of, you know, uh, what they got wrong or just doesn't translate, I mean, I think there's a, there's a, there's a demarcation there, I think. So let's look at doesn't translate. So there are techniques in the cut where you stamp on the skull of the downed enemy. That might not be applicable legally in today's framework, right? So that, that the, the modern laws change. Uh, there are also uh, training methods, something that have moved on. So, like impact equipment, I would suggest that modern impact equipment is more useful than the old stuff. You know, Makiwara still has its place, but focus mitts, kick shields, tie pads, bags, far more useful, you know, than, 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 because of the fact you can hit them on the move at multiple angles and stuff, so far more useful. Uh, if you look at, I, I'd rather use modern weightly lifting equipment in line with modern sports science then I would lift jars and rocks on the end of a stick <laughs> now it's not to say that the old stuff doesn't have a use but again I would suggest modern sports science can make us in a more functional athlete in a safer way you might still want to do the older stuff for historical purposes uh, and interest but but I think again I think a lot of that's been superseded but that doesn't mean the old masters got it wrong it's just that things move on I'm sure if they were here today they, they'd encourage us to make use of the best modern kit we had available, just as they did. Uh, sparring gear, again, that's another thing. If you look at these pictures of uh, Mabuni sparring in uh, baseball gear, 
because that's all I had. But now we've got, you know, good chest protectors, good gloves, shin and instep protectors, groin guards. You know, we can spar in a way that's lively and still safe uh, because of that modern kit. It, it, so, but if you want something that fundamentally got wrong, uh, one, and it seems we talked about Itosu's 10 precepts, Itosu warns about the chi rising up into the face, you know, by, by overexertion in training. So, by which I think he means, you know, you tense up too hard and your blood pressure rockets through the roof and then you end up with a bright red face. If he's saying chi in a literal sense, not a metaphorical sense, I believe he got that wrong. I, I can understand how someone from Itosu's generation may talk about chi in a uh, the sense of it being a real thing, not a, uh, a metaphor uh, for something else, which, you know, I can understand how you may use chi as a metaphor for an intent or, or, or a feeling, but to refer to it as a, as a real thing in the way that blood and oxygen are real things, to refer to chi, um, I, I believe that, that, that that's not correct. There's no support for that with modern science. So uh, if you want something that I believe he totally got wrong, there's one. You know, he, he talks about chi, and I don't believe such a thing exists. Uh, I don't believe there's any evidence for it. Uh, and for the other stuff, I think, you know, just things move on. Uh, so it's not that I really got it wrong, but we've moved on, and I hope that you find the element about the military versus the civilian use interesting. You know, so, uh, yeah, great question that, Gary. Thank you. Learn Kabuddo for self-defense. Hit him with a big stick. Hit him with two sticks tied together. Hit him with a big stick and a small stick joined together at 90 degrees. Hit him with a stick with a curved metal blade sticking out of it. Hit him with a weird shaped metal stick. If you like the idea of hitting criminals with an assortment of weird sticks, then Practical Kabuddo is for you. So we'll now move on to the training questions. First one's from Danny Lembrecht from the Netherlands. He said, a few days ago, I saw your message about the group live practice. Uh, on the pictures, you see a lot of chaos. <laughs> yep. Uh, I'm curious how you build up this exercise so that it's trained in a proper and safe manner. See, and um, there's also a, a related question from uh, Ole Korf, who says, um, you have uh, described sparring drills with multiple participants, free-for-all style. Uh, how do you control the levels of impact used, and do you set explicit rules? Do you have a progression to get people used to these drills, or maybe to do them safely without protective uh, equipment? So essentially, they're asking the same question there. So, And it's nice to know that that post uh, generated that interest because you do need to practice uh, live uh, with multiple opponents if, if, you, if you're claiming a self-defense component to your martial practice because statistically you know in the UK you're talking about 40% of all violent crime where the participants are not known to one another involves more than one person so, so we need to include uh, protecting other people escaping from groups you know these are things we need to include and, and again as with everything it's not enough just to uh, uh, theorize about it or talk about it you need a live practice of it so this is one of the things where people tend to kind of point to the benefit of sport training for self-defense where they'll go yep yeah, but you get live practice well you do but it's live practice with a specific aim so if, 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 if you want to do things for self-defense, it, it makes little sense to do live practice related to a sporting outcome. You need to do live practice related to a self-defense outcome. Again, not that there's anything wrong with the sporting side of it, because obviously there's transferable skills there, and that has its own inherent value. But, but for focus, direct, get the maximum bang for your book training, 
if self-defence is one of your, your aims, you need live practice that accurately reflects the objectives of self-defence. So multiple enemies and multiple drills is something that we do a lot. They get tested on it. We do, Pretty much every time we spar, there'll be some multiple opponent stuff of, of various types. Uh, the other thing is sometimes I've seen people go, oh, yeah, we do multiple opponents. And when I've seen it, they don't. They, they spar with one person, while another one conveniently waits his turn, and then they jump to the other one. If you're doing multiple opponent stuff, it has to be a free-for-all. Now, now, in terms of the potential for injury there, that's obviously high if you just throw your students in at the deep end. So anyone who just walks into the dojo and said, oh, we're doing multiple opponent sparring now, so uh, U4 take on U3 and you can do anything you want, go, it's going to be a bloodbath. But what we have within our sparring, uh, with every grade, the specific types of sparring that we want them to get used to and develop. So we build the sparring up gradually over time. So uh, it's done in a, in a progressive way. There's no throw them in at the deep end stuff. So you're right. If you see those pictures, it looks like chaos. And, and, and it, <laughs> it's very chaotic and there's a lot happening. But if you also look, you'll see them smiling while they do it. You know, uh, it, it's not something they're terrified by. It's something that they, they might find it challenging, but they enjoy it. Uh, and we, I can't think of the last time we had someone hurt during that. It just doesn't happen. But, but because, again, the students have the... Uh, emotional control the skill the technical ability to be able to do that stuff safely so yeah we do build it up gradually over time uh, starting with very simple drills so i'll give an example uh, one of the first multiple opponent drills we do is we have two people grappling uh, uh, and they're allowed to punch each other from within that grapple but while they're doing that there's a third person who can walk around and he taps them on the back if he taps them on the back that uh, that's the equivalent of him hitting them this third person may, can attack either one of them so both of them have to treat this person like a threat so while they're doing the live drill while they're gripping and punching one person they need to be able to divide their attention with another person uh, the third person if they just focus on the person they've got hold of they're going to get constantly tapped by the other person. If they just focus on the person who's going to do, be doing the tapping and ignore the person they're grappling with, they're going to get hit a lot. So this is to get this broad external focus going, uh, as opposed to the narrow external focus that we'll often have when martial artists spar with each other. So it's just a simple game that starts building it up. You know. Now, obviously, this is it's something we do in lots of different ways. There's lots to talk about. So within the confines of the time we've gotten within this podcast, I would say that live sparring with multiple opponents is a must both working as an individual against groups group against groups trying to protect designated individuals in those groups you've, you've got to have all of that within your life practice but it's got to be built up gradually and you've got to ensure the students are able to do it safely as i always say three key requirements of all live drills are that it needs to be safe productive and fun is what it needs to productive it develops meaningful skill safe no one's getting hurt you know we've made it as safe as we possibly can it has to be fun it has to be something that they enjoy even if it's a little bit scary and challenging while they're doing it afterwards they enjoy doing it you know that kind of delayed enjoyment where they go oh that was terrifying why i did it and but yeah i'm kind of proud of myself for doing that yeah, you need uh, to be safe, productive, and fun, and you need to build it up uh, gradually. If you're not sure how to do that, uh, you need to learn how to do it. But but don't do it. <laughs> don't just throw students in at the deep end because you will get accidents and you will get people getting hurt. So 
the next question is from Martin Goffin, where he said, I was once told to train like an old man, or as if you have no strength, you must therefore use technique to overcome. Any suggestions on how this can be done uh, physically and, and mentally? So the, the thing with strength is, what we want to avoid as martial artists is the indiscriminate, inefficient use of strength. What we want is the efficient use of strength. Because sometimes there's this false dichotomy, I think, sometimes between, well, you either use strength or you use technique. Well, 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 the fact is, when you do the technique, what are you doing the technique with? It's your muscles. It's your body, right? So if that body's in good condition and you have, and those muscles are able to exert a force strongly, that will help you. But only if, when the muscles exert that force, it's done so efficiently. So, for example, I, I could try and just use raw strength to break my opponent's balance. Or, I could get the gripping and alignment right, so I get either a far greater effect for my effort, or I get an effect that I wouldn't have got if I'd just relied on muscle alone, right? So, it, 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 technique is really, really important. And, and someone with really good technique uh, will be capable of beating someone with, who uses just raw strength. But to say never use strength is impossible because we move using muscles. So what we want to make sure that we do in training is, um, you know, in our physical training, of course, we will try and develop strength and flexibility and explosiveness and endurance and all those physical attributes. When we do in our technical training, we want to ensure we're making the technique as efficient as possible. And if we're trying to disguise an inefficient technique by using physical strength, that can be problematic. So, it, so the idea of train like an old man can be quite useful, you know, uh, to, to go, okay, I'm, I'm going to try and do this technically rather than just uh, physically to make sure that when I'm practicing, I'm always thinking, is this technique as efficient as possible? And at any point where you're trying to disguise inefficiency by uh, raw use of strength. So maybe you're so inefficient that maybe only 30% of the strength you're exerting is actually achieving an outcome. But if you're a strong guy, that 30% may still do something, right? So you're disguising it. What you want to try and do is that when you move, that movement has an effect through good tactics and, 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 and good technique. So my suggestion on that would be is to not rely uh, on that physical strength if you have it. It's just to try and dial it down a little bit, to try and practice with a little bit more relaxation and always to be mindful of trying to be as physically efficient as possible. I think sometimes the language we use can be problematic. So I, I remember when I was uh, a Q grade, uh, one of the uh, assistant instructors uh, would look at some of the times I did techniques and went, Ian, less power, less power. And in my mind, I thought, what do you mean less power? Surely you want more power. Surely you can't have enough power. You know, you, you want you know a really powerful technique, right? But his choice of word was the incorrect one. What, what, what he meant was less raw strength, Ian. Less tension, Ian. So if he'd said to me, be more efficient with your movement, Ian, or relax a little bit more, Ian, or, or don't waste energy, Ian. Those are things that would have got the message through. But because he said less power, it confused me. And I sometimes if people go, don't use your strength, well, it's impossible because, you know, your muscles are the things that make you move. You know, what we really want to be doing, it's the efficient use of that strength that's important. So the next question is from John Vista, and he wants to know what I think about people holding their pad uh, directly against their head when they're doing uh, impact training. I, yeah, it, it's one of those things. That I, I personally 
don't get. So I've heard this a, a few times uh, from, from various people. Uh, the idea that the pads should be held against the... Uh, we're talking about focus mitts here, not big kick shields, because obviously you can't hold them against your body. But they're talking about focus mitts. They, they, they talk about, oh, you, know, you, you, you should hold it against the side of your head because then the placement is accurate. Or you should hold it directly against the ribs because then the placement of the, the hitter is accurate. Now, as soon as I hear that, I think whoever's saying that can't hit. You know, they just can't, right? Uh, because if you're doing a full power punch... To a person who is holding the pad next to the head, you KO them. If I was to do that with my guys, right, on the first shot we threw, I'd have half the class unconscious. So what you have to do is you hold the pad away from the head so they can hit it hard for safety. Now, now, now some people, sometimes people go, well, I'll hold against the pad against the head because I want the placement, but I still want you to control it. And the pad's there because I don't fully can trust your control. That's different. So that's a placement drill where you're using the pads as a form of protection. But if you're using the pads, which I would do, for impact training, you have to hold them away from the body. Now, of course, when you do that, you lose the accurate placement of the strike. So you need to do other drills... You know, which, where you will control against a partner so you get that accurate placement. You, not every form of training covers everything. You need different forms of training for different elements. But, but if anyone thinks they can hold a pad against the side of the head, hand have the partner hit it full power, and that have no negative effect on the partner, they've either not done it or they can't punch properly. Because anyone who can punch hard will be knocking people out through that focus mitt, guaranteed. Yeah, so I, 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 again, for placement drills, if you want to do that, fair enough. Uh, but for impact drills, you, if you're working with people who can hit well, uh, there's no way you can hold the pads next to the, the, the body, focus mitts next to the body. You just can't because people will be getting injured. You need to hold them away. And in doing so, you accept, okay, I'm losing a little bit of the accuracy here, but that's okay because I've got other drills for that. So the next question is from uh, Dylan Tucker, and he said, given recent advances in our understanding of head injuries and CTE, uh, should we use headgear in our sparring, even light sparring, or 50%? Uh, it, 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 this is, again, one of the things where your opinion changes. So back in the day, we used to have our Wednesday night was our full contact night. So away from the club, me and a few of the other senior guys, um, you know, the guys you'll recognise from the DVDs and stuff, we'd, we'd get together, we'd do cutter and bunk guy drills, and then we'd spar, but we'd spar, you know, heavy contact. We'd put head guards on and boxing gloves on, and, and we'd just, you know, beat seven bells out one another. And then the next day, you'd wake up with a split and bad head, and it would take a day or so to go, and, and, and looking back... I don't think we gained that much from doing it, you know, apart from the fact that we ran the potential risk of injury. Uh, I also remember there was an article in Boxing Magazine where uh, Bertrand Ingle, one of our most successful boxing coaches here in the UK, has produced numerous world champions. Uh, in this article, he said, and this quote sticks with me, he said, the only time people should get punched full power in the head is when they're getting paid millions of dollars for it to happen. So, you know, he's training light in the sparring and then heavy on the pads. And he's still producing a world champion fighter, so you you can't doubt his method. So, you know, so I don't, and there's the argument, oh, oh yeah, you've got to learn to take a punch. It just feels different. 
You know, I've been punched in the head full power with a glove on, and I've been punched in the head full power with a bare fist, and they are radically different sensations, right? So, so, and you don't want to teach people to take a punch. You teach people to be aggressive. Teach people to be determined. Teach people how to avoid punches and, and cover punches. But you don't want to be lining people up and say, "Let me punch you in the skull so you can learn how to take a shot." You know, that doesn't make any sense. And again, Dylan's right. The science on this is quite clear as well that every shot you take to the head has a negative effect right so so in our dojo uh we spar light right? we, we go heavy on the pads the the sparring is done light because i don't want anyone suffering long-term negative health effects through the cumulative effect of taking heavy shots now in the past we did do this away from the dojo so it was always optional but we did do it uh, all of the guys that used to do that now will look back and go we're not quite sure of the value of that yeah it was fun young silly stuff and 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 if someone said to me now should i spar full contact i'd say no not even top boxing coaches would have you spar full contact you know you fight full contact if you're competing in boxing in mma but the sparring uh, should be light and um, with control uh there's other ways to learn to, uh, to learn to deal with pain aggression and determination training and for impact you, you do that on the pads the, the pads are what make sure that when the fist gets there it does some damage and the sparring with a partner ensures you can get the fist to the target that seems to me uh, the best compromise knowing what we now know about uh, head injuries and the potential long-term effect of uh, all contact to the head so the next one is from uh, Jason Kiefer, who asks, uh, what are some of the best drills for students to do to become more competent and confident during live training? Uh, we already work on drills to deal with limbs, playing for grips, uh, fighting for each other's back, etc. Any other advice? So I, I think the, the key thing for live training is to ensure that we teach it like a skill, because it is a skill. I think what happens in a lot of cases uh, within the martial arts, people aren't quite sure how to teach it. So they just go, spar, you'll learn. And, and of course, what the students learn is, I can't do it, it's confusing, and I'm no good at it. And then you can spend years and years and years trying to undo that assumption they've got about their ability to spar the, the, the key thing for me is that you build it up gradually so each type of sparring you do uh, is appropriate for the level of the student so they find it challenging but not overwhelming and every type of sparring you do has a specific skill in mind so i, I always do that thing of uh, you know live practice safe productive and fun so um, it, it, in terms of productive, what skill are we trying to develop here? Do, do we want to develop the ability to get a certain grip? Do we want to uh, 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 develop the ability to break balance? Do we want to develop the ability to stop the opponent from hitting you? From a fighting perspective, do we want to develop the ability to close the gap? Um, you know, uh, Do we want to develop self-defense perspective? Do we want to develop the ability to defend others? We go, okay, this is the skill we wish to develop. Now, how do we do that in a way that the students will find fun? And it's super challenging, but it's got to be fun, because if it's not enjoyable, people just won't do it. It's just a fact. You've got to make it fun for people. And we also need to ensure that it's safe. So I would avoid any throwing them any, anything throwing them in the deep end uh, to do it. Because, again, if you do that, it doesn't develop competence, and it certainly doesn't develop confidence. You need types of drills where the student feels, I can do this. 
And then once you feel confident that, yeah, I can do this, you go, great, now I want you to add this level, layer on. So you build it up uh, gradually. So we talked about earlier, you know, in, in the, the dojo, we do all kinds of, of, of training, but we build it up gradually over time. Yeah, so that would be my thing. Tr treat it like a skill. Have a clear objective in every form of sparring you're going to do. So there's not just generic sparring that you do. You go, right, we're going to work on our ability to land with kicks or our ability to deal with a specific kick or our ability to deal with a specific grip. Now, here's how we can drill this in a way that's appropriate for the, the for the for the level okay and then if you do that what people learn is ah oh, i can do this i can do this it, they develop competence and confidence and then you can build it onto more progressive things you know we have you know all inspiring multiple opponents sparring all kinds of stuff no one gets hurt in our dojo because we've built it up uh, over time so uh, difficult to do explain that without specific examples because yeah one thing is in the app for those who are app subscribers there, there are a few uh, videos on there that show this kind of progression as well so if you're an app subscriber uh, check out the Canterbury sparring uh, section So next question is from Lee Morris. He says, uh, Ian, I'd like to know if you have any thoughts or even experiences of times when you have felt like your senses were heightened during any part of training. A feel type of sense as opposed to uh, maybe seeing tiny tells, for example. So that, uh, not really. I can't say I've had that kind of otherworldly state. However, for want of a better expression, I've certainly had times where I've hit that flow state where, you know, I've just been fully in the moment, I've been on the ball, and I've felt nigh on invincible. Uh, and, and then, of course, what happens is it's after the event, you go, what happened? I, give you example. I remember once being in a competition where the crowd suddenly started cheering, and then I realised, oops, I've just swept him and hit him. You know, so I, I kind of, my conscious brain caught up after my subconscious brain had done the technique. Uh, I remember once uh, it was a grading, and there was uneven numbers, so the, uh, the senior people on the grading panel had said, you know, Ian, do you have your gi with you? Will you spar in? I said, yeah, I'll spar in. Uh, sparred, you know, next thing I know, I, we stop sparring and I get a round of applause from everybody. <laughs> with people patting me on the back when I come off going, whoa, that's the way to spar. And I was like, why, what, what have I just been doing? Um, so there has been these cases where I've just kind of got that state and then everything has just flown beautifully. But never in a kind of otherworldly sense, just really of being in the moment, you know. So they're, they're ones that it's sticking to my mind. I always find it, it's when we overthink things that problems develop. So I always like Masashi's quote where he says, think neither of victory or defeat, think merely of cutting the enemy. If you just think of the task in hand, that's when we tend to do really well. You know what I mean? And it can seem almost otherworldly, but it, but it, it's not. So, but if you're sparring or fighting and you're thinking of, am I doing okay? Is he doing better than me? Am I tired? Am I scared? You know, what shall I try next? All these extraneous thoughts, you're not concentrating on the job in hand. You know, think neither of victory or defeat, think merely of cutting the enemy. When, when you're just focusing on doing the job, that's when it tends to flow and work a little bit better. So, yeah, that's a, as far as I go on that, Lee, I think. Next question is from Mark Calm. He said, how do you keep the uh, the will alive, the desire and motivation and intent to forge forward with vigorous energy and time-consuming training? Uh, does practice need to transcend beyond self-protection to fitness and into deeper philosophy? It's a really good question, that. So for, for, for me, I enjoy it. Bottom line, that's it. I, I enjoy it. I enjoy the way it makes my body feel. I enjoy the challenge of it. Uh, I still enjoy it. So, so, And because I enjoy it, I, I want to do it. 
training is something I look forward to doing. It never feels like a, um, a, a chore or something I've got to do. It's something I want to do. Um, and, and again, I think from a teaching perspective, that's something else. We need to ensure our students, ag- again, that they're enjoying it. You know, martial arts training can't be a chore. It's got to be something that, that uh, you've got uh, enjoyment. And in terms of, you know, does it need to transcend beyond self-protection to fitness and deeper philosophy? If you're only training for self-protection and you're doing, you know, 30, 40 years of your life have been devoted to it, you're missing something there, I think. You know, as I've joked before, no one wants to be that guy who hits 90 years old and says, you know what, that, you know... Eight years in the martial arts was a complete waste of time because no one tried to stab me. Or, you know, you, you don't want to be that guy, you know. And, and if you're only training for self-protection, why? What is that? What, what's happening? What, why is that such a pressing need in your life? Because that would either point to me to paranoia, possibly. Uh, and if you're getting attacked, like, on a regular basis, that, to me, would suggest personality or lifestyle issues uh, more than a, a need for physical uh, technique. So at some point... If you're going to train in the longer term, you need to be getting something else out of it. Uh, you know, I did that. I, I made that mistake. For years, self-protection was my only focus, you see. And then after a certain while, you kind of open up a bit again. To, Actually, you know what? I just like learning a skill. Uh, I like the fact that I'm 50 years old and in much better shape than most, you know, people who are almost 50. You know, I'm in good nick for it, and that's because of my friends who played rugby and soccer. They stopped the, they, because they got too old for it. I can still train, and, and that keeps me in, in, in good shape. Uh, I, I find uh, just it's interesting. It's still interesting. I, I love learning about the martial arts. I love learning new stuff. And the wonderful thing is, there's so much of it, I'll never run out of things to learn. So, 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 so for me, you know, how do you keep the will alive? You've got to keep enjoying it. You know what I mean? And, and the nice thing about, as well about karate is, you can, if I'm not enjoying one element, I can shift to something else. You know, so let's say I've been doing loads of work on a particular cutter and it's starting to get a little bit stale. Okay, switch it up. Let's focus on another cutter now. Maybe let's do some bag work today. Maybe spa. Let's, let's maybe do some physical conditioning today. There's lots you can go at that keeps you active, you know, and even if one element is not really appealing to you in that, in that one moment. And yeah, you know, find the, the wider enjoyment, you know, the, the, the joy of spending time with good people, the joy of learning a skill, the joy of being physically active. Those things will help keep you motivated too. Well, I hope you enjoyed that. I'll be back with part two shortly in which we discuss uh, the bunkai questions and questions about my personal uh, likes and dislikes. Okay, so I'll see you shortly in part two. Thank you very much for listening to part one.